This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another wonderful episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, something a little bit heavy, I must admit, but very, very important, and also hopeful and inspiring. We recently passed through the Israeli day of Yom HaZikaron, Israel Memorial Day, Remembrance Day, the day on which the nation in Israel and the Jewish nation at large mourns the many soldiers who have fallen and considers the grave price we have had to pay for our sovereignty in the Jewish homeland. Of course, that day is followed by Yom HaTzma'ut, Israel Independence Day. Well, on today's episode, we feature a remarkable man, Seth Mandel, father of Kobe Mandel, Hashem Yimkom, Tamav, may God avenge his blood, who was, as a young boy, savagely murdered by Palestinian terrorists. He was out playing walking with his friend in a canyon. And we think about him in context of all those who have been tragically taken in both the active fight for our land and simply just living there as Jews. We're releasing this episode on a very, very special day because today, Monday, May 20th, 2019, for those listening in real time, is actually the yard site, really it's Yudtet Iyar, it's the yard site, the anniversary of the death of Kobe Mandel. Kobe would have been 32 today, and while his memory remains as strong as ever to his family and those who knew him, he has really been kept alive through the work of the foundation inaugurated in his memory. The Kobe Mandel Foundation brings incredible resources, support, and professional help to members of bereaved families those who are victims of terror, as well as, in its current iteration, those who have lost loved ones to illness and other tragedies. And this remarkable organization, through its wide variety of services, its Camp Kobe in the summers, retreat throughout the years, and many other initiatives that we will learn all about today, has really kept Kobe's spirit very much awake, not only among his family, but in the broader consciousness of the Jewish people. And so on this day is your site or any day after that you're listening, we think of Kobe Mandel, this young boy who was taken far, far too early. But we also think of the undying resilience of a Jewish family, of the Jewish people in the land of Israel and beyond, and our unprecedented capacity to transform tragedy into kindness, into light, into triumph. Those are the messages that undergird what it means to be a Jew and are eminently on display in the Kobe Mandel story. And now to our conversation with Kobe Mandel Foundation co-founder and the father of Kobe Mandel, Rabbi Seth Mandel. We are here with Seth Mandel, one of the founders, along with his wife, of the Kobe Mandel Foundation, a person who has a long 
history and a long career in, in Jewish service. We have a number of overlapping connections ourselves. Seth was a Hillel director at University of Maryland many years ago, where I uh, work currently for Ma'or. And uh, we're very excited to welcome you to the show, Seth. How are you? Thank you. I'm very fine. Nice to be here. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, so why don't we take it from the top? Of course, we're going to get into the more current events and, and the Kobe Mandel Foundation and, of course, your son who was tragically taken all those years ago. And, of course, we want to memorialize that uh, today. For those listening on the release date is the actual yard site. For those listening later, it's still a very important story. Um, but before we get there, let's go from the beginning. Tell us a little bit about where you're from and, and what your upbringing was like. Sure. I grew up in a little town called Willamette, Connecticut, uh, about 100 Jewish families, a 10-minute drive from uh, Yukon, with a traditionally conservative family, which meant that we went to the synagogue three times a year, more or less, maybe a little bit more than that. I went to Hebrew school until I was 13 years old and then left as soon as that I could. I went to the University of Connecticut after that as a totally secular, regular college student. Big Huskies fan? Uh, I was at the time, sure. All, all, in fact, growing up, uh, because we were so close, it was the you know, college team that I followed, followed. Unfortunately, I'll tell you how much I followed them. They never got higher than the 13th place in the national standings while I was really living in Willimantic until I was 23 years old. You missed, um, you missed their heyday, their glory days. I missed, I missed the heyday. That's absolutely correct. That's right. Although I did meet uh, Doran Shepard, who you recently interviewed. Um, sure did, yes. up. I, I, met, I met him up in Israel. Uh, so in 1973, I had been, uh, when I, after I graduated from college, I went to Israel to help on the kibbutz after the Yom Kippur War. A guy came on TV and said they need 10,000 volunteers to replace the kibbutzniks who were on the front. And I said, gee, that sounds like a good idea to me. I really wasn't interested in, in Israel. Uh, but I was interested in traveling, and I had a great ticket, so I went there for seven months, and that was sort of the beginning of a Jewish awakening. I went Is that back your first time in Israel ever? Yeah, first time I've been thinking about going to Israel. I, you know, every Jewish kid thinks about one day maybe they'll go to Israel, but it was really not on the agenda. As in fact, the agenda was to go to New Orleans to become a bartender. That was my plan. Uh, <laughs> as the Israel trip came up, it had a good, a good keep ticket, and had a stopover on the way back in Europe. Uh, which I took advantage of, and I was there for seven months, and I read about uh, various books about Judaism. I read something called um, uh, God's Jews in History by and Max de Munt, you know, uh, and uh, other books that just said, oh, there's something more to being Jewish. Not the Judaism, but being Jewish. I went back there a couple of years later, and on my way out of Israel to go to the Peace Corps and work in um, uh, Senegal, actually, uh, I met a rabbi at the Western Wall called Mir Schuster. Wow. And he, uh, in the parlor, sent me to the yeshiva. So it was a very long story, but eventually I ended up uh, uh, buying, the, uh, buying the whole farm. Uh, and I ended up studying for about four or five years in Orsameach, in, in Jerusalem. Uh, eventually, as a result of that, or actually later on, I went uh, uh, to my wife. And she convinced me that uh, my destiny lay in becoming a Hill director. Uh, <laughs> so uh, she, I went off, I went off, and I got smicha uh, because she said, you know, this is what you need to become a Hill director. I was at Penn State for two years, and then I came to the University of Maryland for five years. Where, uh, where did you meet your wife? What was her background? So her background was probably less Jewish than mine. 
less, uh, less observant of mine. She was the only kid in her, uh, in her class, in her grammar school class, which was 99% Jewish, not ever bat mitzvah. Her parents thought that, you know, the uh, liberal Judaism that they were involved in, they saw was not for them, let's put it that way, and uh, really didn't want their kids to be involved in it. Uh, she came to Israel uh, after graduate school, um, just sort of uh, to visit, because she was in England and she wanted someplace to go, and she came. She uh, met a friend of mine, was traveling around the world, and came to visit me, and we used to have dinner together, and he said to me, there's this girl you should meet, you know, she's a great dancer, and she's a writer, and I was at the time a writer, uh, so I agreed to meet her, and he brought her to my house. Um, so she went to Cornell, by the way, and she had, she had very, very little background. Um, in fact, I think she told me she didn't know what Shabbat was at the time. I know it was the Sabbath was. Wow. So really, it's a, so we're really like a, a kind of a miraculous story that we, the two of us are here in, uh, in Israel, living in the West Bank in Israel. Had someone introduced you when you were studying over there? I had finished studying. I was working uh, as a writer, actually. Um, and this guy, this guy was, you know, I think you can cut this out, but I, this guy I met in Boston, he told me he was going on a around-the-world trip. So I said, when you get to Israel, go to the Kotel, uh, find a guy named Mir Schuster, and tell him you want to see me, and he'll find me for you. Uh, knowing that he would bring him to Orsamech. So two weeks after he got to Orsamech, they gave him my phone number. I was already out working <laughs> out the magazine. Uh, and well, he today, still looking for it. <laughs> but he, 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 of course, is now religious and lives in, uh, in West Hempstead, New York. <laughs> um, so, uh, as you say, there are always a lot of connections. A lot of connections. I guess it was very hard for them to find the phone number, you know, in less than two weeks. <laughs> that's right, that's right. It took them a long time. Well, you know, I actually didn't have a phone. That was a funny thing. So, right. it's hard, you know, it was a different era in Israel back then. Oh, my know? goodness gracious. Until, until not that long ago, you know, it's quite a situation. Uh, that's right. It should take two years to get a phone. There you go. So you were uh, you decided to go into collegiate work specifically. Why that avenue of Jewish service? Well, first of all, I'm not that crazy about little kids. Number one. Right. Secondly, uh, I always was the guy who they bring, who they would bring new kids to, new guys to in Orsamea because I liked talking to them. I had a very philosophical background. Uh, I enjoyed working with people who were interested in Judaism who uh, were open to kinds of things. And uh, it was just a population that I thought, that I, thought I could relate to. And it was true. It was, it was true. Uh, I enjoyed very much being a little director. I enjoyed working with the kids. I enjoyed the, uh, the lifestyle of a little director. Um, and uh, I liked the position. It was, it was great for me. After about five years at Maryland, seven years altogether, I was watching TV in my hilo with a bunch of the kids, and we saw the handshake between Yitzhak Rabin and Yasser Arafat on the White House lawn, which was at the time about 20 minutes where we stood. And I thought to myself, well, now maybe there's going to be peace in Israel. I can go back to Israel, and my kids won't have to go into the army. I thought to myself, Kobe at the time was nine, eight or nine. I said to myself, well, they'll probably have to go into the army, but maybe they won't have to go into war. So we went back to Israel after seven years in the States, really uh, thinking that there was no way to back out of a, out of a peace deal that it was, it was going to happen. Unfortunately, um, about four years later, in 2001, uh, my son was the 62nd person murdered in the Intifada uh, here in Israel. Uh, his, he was out hiking in a 
uh, nearby canyon, uh, close to our house, uh, close to our home, with a friend of his named Yosef Ishran. Kobe was 13 years old and a eighth grader. His friend was also an eighth grader, he was 14 years old, and they were uh, murdered by terrorists, uh, kind of in a um, uh, in a uh, crime of opportunity. They just happened to bump into these. We think they just bumped into these guys. There were four or five of them. It was a very brutal murder. They were trapped in a small cave with these guys, and these guys beat them to death with uh, uh, boulders the size of bowling balls. It was very, very brutal, very personal kind of murder. Um, that obviously changed our lives. Uh, we didn't know quite what what life would be like afterwards. When somebody is bereaved in such a traumatic way, it really, you're starting life all over. You really don't know what uh, what what's going to come next. You don't know really how to deal with things. Everything is new and everything is different and always in a, in a bad way. Um, I can ask you one, just for a moment just to kind of set the stage. Um, you said that you had watched the Oslo Awards, felt this surge of optimism, chosen to return to Israel, which had that been a long-term dream for you to go back to Israel? Yeah, I, I had been in Israel for about 15 years uh, from the time that, uh, that I went to Orsa, the year before I went to Orsa when I worked there. Um, and there was never a day when I went back to the States that I didn't want to go back to Israel. Um, I was not a person who could really relate to the Jewish world in America. Um, I didn't like being, you know, speaking about returning to Zion and coming to Yerushalayim five times, you know, three, three times a day, five times in these prayer, and saying, well, I could be there, but I'm here. Uh, I really felt that uh, what's happening in Jewish history is happening here in Israel. And when I saw this happening, I realized to be part of, of, of Jewish history, I needed to be somewhere near, near Yerushalayim. Um, today I live in the West Bank. I live in a small community called Tekoa. Uh, the next stop after where I live is actually the Dead Sea in Jordan. Um, so we really feel that we are living sort of on the edge of Jewish history. Um, and that gives tremendous meaning to what we do, tremendous meaning to our lives, tremendous meaning to our, to our kids' lives. Judaism um, here is a very natural way to live. Yeah. And uh, my kids appreciate that. That's amazing. <laughs> My son, I just like my son, who's now like traveling through America, said doesn't understand why any Jew would live in America. Just doesn't 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 hear you know here when you can live in Israel. I live in America and feel the same way. So <laughs> same question. Everybody says. You know? So just to set the stage for historically what was happening at the time, um, for those who may not remember the history or those who may not have been alive for the history, <laughs> listeners, believe it or not, you could twenty five years old. And, not have been alive then. So what was going on um, in the, from the period of the Oslo Accords? Can you give us like an, an, a thumbnail sketch of what happened in Tafadas and, and so forth, and then taking that up to the, the time period surrounding um, Kobe's tragic passing? Sure. So, so um, uh, the Oslo Accords, I think, were in 1996, something like that. Uh, there were immediate attacks, uh, bus bombings in Israel. Um, by the Palestinians. In fact, uh, the number 18 bus, which is one of the buses that I used to take from one of the places that I lived, was blown up twice. Uh, in that time, uh, there was, you know, they, brought back, they brought the Palestinian Authority back, or the PLO back, became the Palestinian Authority. In um, Rosh Hashanah of 2000, 
they began, there was a there was a previous uprising in 2000. An up, another uprising amongst the Arabs happened, uh, which this time instead of involving rocks, involved uh, um, guns and uh, and mortars and things like that. Uh, in seven years, I believe it is, 1,300 Jews were killed. Civilian Jews were killed by terrorists here in Israel. Um, Kobe's they, they began between 2000 and about 2007. Kobe, as I said, was the 62nd person killed. Uh, he had the merit to be the only person killed by rocks uh, in, in it. Um, it was a time of great tension. It was a time during that time I wouldn't let my kids go on a bus. I would give them money for a, uh, um, for a taxi. We would drive around in bulletproof vests yep. here to go on, on the road here in the West Bank. It was very stressful. And nobody, nobody liked it. There were a lot of Palestinians that were killed as well during that time. That was after we came back. When we came back, there was this kind of lull where we thought that things would be different. Once we were already here and we were raising our kids here and we lived where we lived, we didn't really think about going back. And even after Kobe was killed, we didn't think about going back. Uh, we thought that uh, this was the place that we belong. This was the place that we gave our son to. And we really needed to stay here to make meaning out of what happened. So, as you mentioned, um, take us back to that day, this, this, this terribly tragic day in your family, but really for the entire Jewish nation. Uh, Kobe was out for a walk. He was... He had gone, he was supposed to go to school. And he is his friend uh, cut school to walk through this, uh, this canyon, which had been a place where the kids in Tekoa, where we lived, had been playing in for the previous 20 years. And they had told him about it. He wasn't allowed to go down there. It wasn't something that he was supposed to do. He also obviously wasn't supposed to cut school. Um, uh, but uh, they walked around the outside of the community and down a long path. Uh, sometime around 10 o'clock in the morning, according to the police, they were trapped in this small cave by four or five uh, Palestinian terrorists. And as I said, we're beaten to death with, uh, with boulders. When that happened, we really didn't know anything about it until 7, 8 o'clock that night. Seven, eight o'clock that night, we called the police. We called, they came, they searched all night. And about seven o'clock in the morning, they came to us and told her that uh, the, uh, the boys had been found murdered in this cave. Um, Sherry fell down to the ground. I walked over to keep the chair. I came back and I saw Sherry on the ground and I said, how are we gonna, she said to me, how are we gonna get through this? And I said, we're gonna get through this because we have three other children. We're not gonna allow the murderers who killed Kobe to kill the rest of our kids as well, to destroy the rest of our kids, the rest of our family. That was your immediate response. That was my, that was my response. But I, was, I, I immediately knew that we, had, we were different, that we now had to change that about ourselves, which defined us. I mean, I always wanted to save the world, don't get me wrong, but I didn't know that it was going to be this. I realized that we had to do something that was bigger, that we had to show our kids how a Jew response to, tra to, to tragedy. We had to show them how, uh, how, what one does when that happens. Um, and we thought that we had to do something different. We didn't know what it was going to be. But uh, even as early as the Shiva, I was talking to people about doing something in Kobe's name. Um, and a lot of that, by the way, is because I was a Hill director and I knew the Jewish community, particularly on the East Coast. I had, I had friends there, I had connections there. Uh, the story about Kobe was on the front page of every newspaper in America, except for the New York Times. It was on page two. It was on the front page of it. It's on the front page of the Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, 
providence people all over the world told me, heard about it and i knew that we would have a platform to be able to do something positive out of this to build something positive out of this tragedy uh we, as long as we got sort of going in in, in, the, in the media i just didn't know what it was going to be what number was kobe in the family among the children here's the before here's our oldest child we had three other children we still think i have three other children he was 13 our son daniel was 11 actually his bar mitzvah was the same week as kobe's first your son you can imagine that that's a really very much so for him as well by the way i have a daughter who was a year longer, who was 10 when Kobe was killed. She now works for us in the foundation. And my little one was, was uh, I think, five at the time. He's now 24. Huh. So today, Kobe would be 32 um, when he comes. He would be 32 years old now. That's right. Unbelievable. Um, so you said that you had big dreams as soon as you realized that you know, something had changed. What did you envision doing? And I know there's a lot of support in Israel. There's, you know, one family fund and other organizations. What was around at that time? That, that nothing really existed. That's one of the reasons we chose to work with Terra because there was a tremendous amount of, by the way, one family also didn't exist at the time. Um, the, there was a tremendous amount of support for fallen soldiers, people who had gotten killed as soldiers, but there was nothing for terror victims. Uh, we found that out right away. I, I think, I think that the government did provide financial support, uh-huh. but there was no emotional support. So we made the decision not to offer financial support. We offer only emotional support programs. Um, and it comes out of our own, exper- our own experience. There were, by the time, by the, by the way, at that time, between the beginning of the Intifada and the end, 70 different organizations which popped up to try to work with terror victims. 70? Okay. 70, 70. Oh my goodness. Okay. Today there are three left and one had existed before. So it was really a time when people wanted to help the Jewish people. They wanted to help uh, Israelis who were affected by terror. Uh, there was a giant, if you remember, there was a giant um, uh, protest in Washington with about uh, 200,000 people. Or something I remember like that. it very well. So I spoke there. Some other people who we knew who were terrorists spoke there as well. So it was a big deal in America, uh, and people wanted to help. Well, how do people in America help in these kinds of situations? Thank God they credit support financially to, to these kinds of things. Wow. So once I went there uh, and spoke, you know, people were uh, happy to help. Um, and that was why we were able to start. I should say that because it comes from where, who we are, you know, the first thing that happened was that my daughter came home from school. We saw that they didn't have any support in, my kids had no support in, in, in their schools because they just didn't know how to deal with it. And she came home from school and she said, I just had an argument with my best friend. And I said, what happened? She said, well, I got angry here. Um, and then after I got angry, I said, I'm really sorry. I was angry. I'm still upset about Kobe. And she, my best friend said, I'm upset about Kobe too. Oh. So we realized that this little ten-year-old girl, who was my girl, my daughter, didn't realize there was a difference between what she experienced and what a sister experienced. So we realized that there had to be programming for these kids. My wife started started a program for for mothers because she was talking to Yosef Ishran's mother, the boy who was killed with Kobe, who said, "Really, what I need to do is um, just take a break, get away from everything, and be able to relax and be myself." And Sherry said, well, we can do that. And we're, our very first program was a program for bereaved mothers, uh, almost exactly one year after Kobe was killed. 
Um, so it really came out of our own experience of what does a bereaved family need in order to, to, to experience the kind of support that we experienced here at the co-op because we have such a close, close community. What were some of the programs you started to develop as this evolved? You said you started with the bereaved okay. mothers. Um, That's right. so what did you able- after that? And what did you learn about the needs of families of, of terror victims? So our first, our major program was at that time, and it's remains today, uh, a camp for children who have lost immediate family members to terror. Uh, these are children who lost a sister, a brother, a father, or a mother to terror. In the beginning, we had 600 kids in the camp. Um, now we have about 300 kids in the camp, and we work with kids of women of all kinds, plus terror, of course, but also from heart attack victims and car accident victims, suicides. Uh, so we bring them to camp for 10 days. We have uh, a lot of social integration because as they become teenagers, they become each other's support, support system. They become each other's best friends. Um, we had a lot of recreation, of course. It's fun. And uh, we have a lot of psychology. There's, each kid gets about two hours a day, hour and a half a day of kind of a group play therapy kind of thing. They'll do art, they'll do music, they'll do things like that with their group. Um, and their therapist is with them through the rest of the camp. So when they go to uh, the beach with their group, the therapist will be there. So when the kid comes out of the water and throws himself down on the sand next to the therapist, the kid will then say, oh, this is what happened to me. And the therapist will be there at the moment where the kids wants to share. And it's really about sharing. It's really about feeling that what happened to you is not only happened to you, but you are people who share your experience. Um, and that you're able to share with it. And that's really the best thing that you can do to support people. Um, my wife just took a group of 30 bereaved mothers and widows to the Dead Sea for the day. There was no, pro, there was no psychological program, but just the fact that they were there together was able to uh, give them the kind of support they need to be able to go on for a little bit while longer. Um, wow. and to, you know. Why did you make the pivot to extend beyond just terror victims, which was you know, kind of your main expertise, right. so, personal expertise? Right. So, so first of all, I always thought bereavement, in any case, needs support. And I, in fact, I always wanted to bring other, other kids into the camp, and uh, people who were our funders didn't want to do that. They felt that terror victims were really worried. Today, thank God, the number of terror victims, thank God, is not what it was at that time. And we developed this three-stage program of how to work with these kids of the, in terms of the social integration and the recreation and therapeutic programming. And we felt it was a shame not to bring it up to other people. Uh, this program is literally saving these kids' lives. Um, if you look at the statistics, according to what I've heard, about 20% of people going to mental institutions in America is because of unresolved issues of bereavement. So it's something that people don't think about, and in fact, if we don't have a way to, to grieve health in a healthy way, to grieve and to heal, it can cause you psychological problems for literally the rest of your, rest of your life. Yeah. Um, so camp is a place where these kids get to deal with it. How did you know what to do? How did you learn? Obviously, you have your own experience of pain, but you weren't you know, a psychologist. The truth of the matter is, that we consulted with psychologists. Uh, we had, you know, some of the, the best psychologists and the most uh, experienced grief psychologists in the world help us. We really checked with them to make sure what we were doing was right. There was a one, one guy who told us who, who worked with the um, with the Israeli army. He said, if you could develop a program to work with bereaved children, the Camp Kobe is the program that he would develop. 
Wow. Um, because, because kids will not respond to straight psychology. You know, they're, they're not interested in, in thinking that, they're, that they need help. They're not interested in talking to an adult. But they, can, they are interested in talking to each other, and they are interested in being with other kids who have lost people. Um, so a lot of it, it was a combination of what we knew intuitively what was necessary, what our kids thought was necessary, and what psychologists told us was the right thing to do. Has that approach changed over the last 20-some years? Um, well, this new idea of bringing, this idea of bringing the psychologists into the camp and uh, having them live in the camp and be with the kids 24 hours a day is something that we started two years ago. So yes, it's always developing. It's always moving forward. Listen, bereavement is bereavement. The main thing we can do is bring these kids together. All the other stuff is, is an excuse to get them to talk. We want to create an environment where they feel this is a place where they, where they can talk. Uh, you know, support from the community is something that the more it talks about. The more Bruchus it talks about, you know, you can't heal by yourself. You have to have someone pull you up out of, out of your healing. So that's what we're trying to do. So it's an, it's an age-old issue. Uh, it's more traumatic because of the situation that we're in. Um, but it's something that is known, of, known in terms of, uh, of what to do. And we always obviously are innovating to try to do more. Our major thing that we can do more is spread it out to more kids. That's really what we would like to do. We could have thousands of kids at the camp if we had enough financial backing to be able to do that. Because, where, do you you know, do the, where do you do the camps? We did it at a kibbutz up in the north. We just moved, this year will be our first year, to a uh, school in Tikva, which is, you know, this beautiful, bucolic, pastoral setting. It looks like a farm, really. Uh, and that's really what I want. I want to go to bring these kids from the, from the cities into the country so they can sit back and relax and, and breathe in a, in a way that's, uh, that they're not used to doing. So uh, this will be our first year there. We've been about four weeks. We rent places. We've never bought. We've never felt that that was important to do, although that may change in the future. Uh, so we've been renting, we rent these kibbutz guest houses, basically. What other programs are you doing throughout the year? Obviously, the camp is 10 days. I'm sure there's a lot of preparation and the fundraising, but are there formal weekends for parents? Sure, there, sure. Like every, every, the group, the camp, you should know, is divided up into four different divisions. There's a division for boys, a division for girls, primarily religious kids, a division for uh, non-religious kids, and a division for religious kids who want to be in a mixed program. <laughs> so, right, so we have four different programs. Each of those programs have at least three divisions. They have a grade school division, from, like say grades one to seven, they have a middle school division and a high school division. So each of those kids come together at least twice a year with their counselors for Shabbatoni. And then during the year, we also have two or three camps. We have a camp over Hanukkah vacation, a camp over two or three reunion camps, over Hanukkah vacation, and a, a pre-Pesach camp as well, usually. Uh, so that we're always with them. The counselors are always in touch with the kids. There's a lot of going to see them. There's a lot of calling them on, air, on Shabbat and things, things like that. And the and, also, and my wife has ongoing programs for the women. We have ongoing weekly programs in Jerusalem. Uh, and we have four or five at least Shabbatonim or overnight programs for either bereaved mothers or widows during the course of the year as well. What about the men? Because men, I think, probably are closer to the vest with their emotions. You know, maybe don't demonstrate their need as much, but probably are harboring a lot. If I could find funding to bring men to Himalayas to climb a mountain and then have a therapy group on top of the mountain, I could get a lot of people. 
We've tried it a number of times. Men are not really so interested in coming regularly for this kind of, this kind of thing. It just happens the way that it is. I understand it, but that's just the way that it is. That, you, know, you can't save the whole world, as my rabbi, Rabbi Schiller, once said. Well, hopefully if you save the women, then at least the family is strengthened. Exactly. The woman is the person who really leads the family in their bereavement. So uh, um, I think that's the most important thing to do. And the kids, of course. What have been some of the most unique things that you've seen, surprising outcomes of some of the work that you've done, being in the unique position that you're in? What surprised you about what you've seen from the tragedy and trauma of others? So I, I don't know how much time you have. There, there are hundreds of stories of what happened at the camp and stuff like that. Just pick half of them. <laughs> my, my, my favorite story is three girls who were new to the camp got up at the dinner and they said, we'd like to tell our stories. So uh, the counselor said, go ahead, tell me your story. I said, no, you don't understand. We want to tell our story to more people. So they said, okay, come up after dinner to this, this room up here and we'll bring your group. Anybody who wants to come can come. And they announced it. So they get up to the room and 60 girls piled into this room. Wow. Right? Um, and the, the three girls t- began to tell their stories about what it, how their relative died and what it felt like to them. And then the other girls started telling the story until they went around all night, telling the, each one telling the story of what happened to them in their lives and how it changed their lives. And then they began to tell jokes. Because, you know, there are certain black jokes that you can only tell to another bereaved person. Just get, otherwise, people will think you're both cruel and crazy. Um, so that went on for a couple hours, right? And then they began to sing. And they sang through the night until the sun came up. So they turned all of these, these heartfelt and painful stories into laughter and song. And that's really what we want to do, is we want to have these kids see through the depth of the pain, you can have the depth of a certain amount of joy that normal, ordinary people can't feel because they don't feel the depth of the pain. Another time, uh, I, we came to the camp. And we, did, we also did, in the beginning, we did family programs. And we'd have a family, we had programs for, for, for parents, for kids, and for little kids. And we came, my wife and I came to this program. And one of the counselors came up to me and said, we just had a session with the teenagers. And the teenagers tell us that their mothers and fathers are not really caring for them anymore. They're not listening to them. So I right away went over to this group of parents and I said, you know what, the psychologist just told me that you guys are not listening to your kids. You know what they did? They all burst out laughing. Why? Because they weren't capable of dealing with their teenage kids at that point. They just lost a child, another child. And the only thing that they could do was laugh. And it told us the difficulty that kids have in these families. Many times they turn into the, to the parents of the family. Many times they turn into the... Uh, to the scapegoat of the family. So it's really difficult for these kids, as well, of course, for the parents as well. One final story I'll tell you. We came into camp about 11 o'clock at night, my wife and I, and one of the counselors who comes from Tacoa, who was a friend of ours, came over, he's about an 18-year-old boy, came over to me and said, you know, this whole camp, this, my whole life is worth just what happened, what just happened. So he said, no, just what, what happened. He said, well, this afternoon, during one of the programs, during the, the it was karaoke as it happens, a kid fainted, right? And there's a lot of commotion, and we helped to the nurse, and everything was okay, he was fine after that. And that, that evening, it was karaoke. 
and it's one of, it happens to be one of the most uh, favorite of the of the programs of the kids. <laughs> so the counselor said, "I saw this kid, and he was off to the corner by himself." So I walked over to him to ask him what was the matter. Now you should know we have one staff person for every three kids, so the kids always have somebody who they can talk to or who will talk to them. So the kid looked at me and he said, "Today, I'm still not feeling very well." You know, when my father died, I was with him. And I saw his face, and that kid who fainted today, his face reminded me of my father's face. So the counselor said, well, tell me what about your father. So he said, well, my father loves sports. He said, he taught me how to play soccer. Right? We would go sailing together. He taught me how to play basketball. So the counselor said, would you like to play basketball right now? So he said, yeah. So they went up. They found the ball. By the time they got a ball, they got everything on. They got the lights. It was about 10 o'clock, and they started to shoot around. Counselor started to shoot, and the kids said, "No, no, no, wait, wait." My father told me to shoot like this, and he taught the eighteen, this ten-year-old boy, so taught the eighteen-year-old counselor how to shoot. Right? And he said, "My father told me how to dribble like this," and he taught the counselor how to dribble. And every night, that for that for the rest of that kid, these two, the counselor and this little ten-year-old kid, went up to play basketball by themselves. Right? So the kid literally was able to channel his father. He took something positive his father and he brought it into the world to help what he had was doing to help this, this counselor. So, so the camp gives these children an opportunity to connect to their parents in a way that they couldn't connect to before and have the support to be able to really uh, to really work through it and really work. We believe this is the way people heal. They heal through this process of understanding what happened to them, of understanding there are other people who are like them who they can talk to, and to be really supported in their emotional journey toward healing. That's what we would like them to do. How do you find the counselors for this? They must be really special young men and women. Well, we have about five counselor applications for every position. We also, I didn't, there's a couple other programs I didn't have to tell you about. We now have a program for American high school kids from day schools who come and serve as counselors at Camp Kobe. They come for a five-week program. They come as a, as, for three of the weeks, three of the other weeks, they are in fact touring around like any other uh, high school kid. And then for 10 days, two weeks with, with, with training, they come and work as counselors for the kids. Um, we also have, by the way, a program with the New Jersey Y Camp for about today, this year, there'll be about 90 secular Jewish kids who come and they work with Ethiopian children in a community center in Rehovo. And they come also for, they come for four weeks, they travel for three weeks, and for one week, they're with these Ethiopian kids in a day camp, letting them know that the world cares about them and really trying to uh, support them in any way that they can. Beautiful. How do you, how do you deal with the uh, the language barrier with the American kids? And also, uh, well, you know, oddly enough, so the, the kids in high school have a lot of Hebrew, and when they're with the uh, we we place them with an Israeli counselor. The day school kids they really don't need, need hugs. They're little Ethiopian or other other kids, and they just you know they're five, four, five years old, and they just want somebody to hold their hand and walk around with them. And of course, there are Israelis. Uh, around there to help them with any, any kind of communication problems. It hasn't been a problem, oddly enough. I, I agree with you, Anika. Uh, or the American well, kids impacted by this? Well, for all of them, but particularly for the kids who come to Camp Kobe, it's a life-changing experience for them. You know, these are kids from affluent homes who have never been in a position where they got to wash the hair of some kid. You know, they got to do everything for these kids, and they've just got to give and give and give, and it literally changed their lives. So they love it. We love having them. 
And their teachers and their parents love the program as well. We also have a program called Comedy for Kobe. Twice a year we bring, actually now it's three times a year, we bring three comics um, organized by a comic named Avi Lieberman, who was actually uh, was born in Israel and now is a comic in Los Angeles. He brings three three people who come. They are people who have been on Johnny uh, Johnny Carson on, um, on the Tonight Show, right? Well, some of them have been on Johnny Carson, by the way, on the Tonight Show or on you know Jimmy Kimmel Show and these kind of there's that level of comic, and they come and they play in six different places in Israel in English. So that it's really a boon to the um, English-speaking um, community here in Israel. People love it. People come year after year after year as well. So we're having another one of those in the end of in the end of May, as a matter of fact. It's a great fundraiser for us, but it also gets Kobe's name out there in the American community, in the English-speaking community, and it's great for people to come and laugh. They, people love it. When you ask what else we do, that's the other kinds of things that we do. Incredible. How how is the fundraising go for you, and especially as you know, sadly, you know, over time, the name, the memory fades in people's minds. I'm sure at first it was probably easier to target the heartstrings of potential supporters. And now, unfortunately, there's many, many other terror victims since then. And just, you know, the natural fading of time. How has right. that impacted things? And, and what do you do to keep it fresh and to be able to continue raising the funds necessary for such vital work? Sure, sure. So we have now, because we're so... In fact, in the beginning, they got to know the program. They got to know myself and my Cherry. So we have a uh, we have a lot of people oh, who are with us who know us, who like our work, who are committed to, to helping us. We have a board of board of directors of courts in America, and we have people who have been sending us money regularly over the years who continue to send, continue to send us money. Uh, last year, we brought comedy from Kobe to America, and we we raised money through that. Listen. Between 2008 and 2013, it was very, very hard, right, during the crash, right? It's much easier now. People are more willing to give to all organizations, and uh, people realize it's still an important thing to support. It's always challenging. You know, that's why we do the comedy for Kobe. That's why we do the the camp for Americans. It's also a revenue stream, you know, Um, so that we try to do as much as possible. We try to offer service to people so that they can uh, uh, give money in that way. And we still have our, our, our group. We need to do more, as, as always, um, and we will do more. But for the moment, we're okay. You know, we're, we're okay. What do you still want to see happen within the foundation growing the camp? Are there programs you'd like to add to add the funds? So the next thing on the agenda is a, a wellness center uh, that will be a wellness center and a camp. It'll be a place for bereaved people, people who suffer traumatic trauma of all kinds, to come. Probably both of them will be a day center where they can come from all over the Jerusalem area to for you know therapeutic programs. And it'll also be a center where people come and stay overnight. And they'll have like a, a respite for two or three days. So when someone is bereaved through terror or something else, they need to get away for three or four days. They can come. I believe it will be uh, for very little, sub- very heavily subsidized or for free. We're working on, the, on that right now. It's a whole different fundraising aspect of it, but that's where I think where, that we're headed. Um, we want to do more programming on a regular basis, so to speak, on an ongoing, on, ongoing basis for a wider group of, of agreement. Listen, I think in, in, in part through our work, what happens in bereavement in this country has become much more supportive of bereaved. Of bereaved. It was a time when soldiers in Israel we're not allowed to, to cry at the gravesite funeral services of their 
beloved comrades who fell in battle. It was a sore, it was a forbidden for them to cry. Today is no longer the because you didn't show, want to show people weakness. Um, horrible for the, for, the, for the kids, horrible for the family. Uh, today that's changed. And you're allowed to show you the emotion. You're allowed to feel bereaved. You're allowed to ask for help. There's a tremendous stigma in this country, much more so than America, to ask for psychological counseling. Uh, that, that, remains, that remains so today. So this is, we've made some inroads in that way. Um, in, in large part because kids come home and say, oh, I had this counselor at Camp Kobe, you know, and I'd like to continue with him. Or continue not with him, continue, continue talking to somebody. Um, so it's really changed in society, so it's easier. As I said, we could have a couple of thousand kids at camp if we really opened it up to the whole country for all kinds of, of, all kinds of bereavement. So that's really where we'd like to go. We'd like to, uh, to create these centers where people can come and feel supported and feel a warmth of the love of their professional people who are with them and to be with other people who are like them so they can have a little bit of respite, a little bit of relaxation from the everyday kind of life that we live here in Israel. Where can people learn more about Kobe Mandel Foundation and uh, how can people support it? How can people discover? The best thing to do is um, go to our website, kobymandel.org, K-O-B-Y-M-A-N-D-E-L-L.org.org. Um, you can uh, get to me through there at info. My email is seth at kobymandel.org. You can talk to me. And uh, we, of course, have all of the various necessary uh, papers for it to be a nonprofit, both here in Israel and in, in America. And uh, we're not hard to find. If somebody wants to find it, we'd love to talk to people. Is there anything else that we should know about your work and, and your mission or, or about Kobe himself? Well, I'll just a little bit about Kobe since it's his your site today, which is Ted Bob, the 15th of Ia. He was a kid like all of the kids, but uh, some things came out in the uh, shiva that we didn't know about. So I'll tell you one story to give a sense of who he was. A little boy came to us the last day of the shiva, and all of his friends had come his last day, and the little boy said, you know, uh, last week, Kobe and I were in gym class together. It was volleyball. And the kid said, I should say the kid was very small, a little pudgy, little wire rim glasses, and he said, uh, I'm not very good at volleyball, but Kobe was one of the best players in the, in, the, in the class, and the truth of the matter is, Kobe told me that what allowed him to integrate into the integrated classroom was the fact that he was good at sports. Right? So he said, when the coach told us right, that uh, we could pick, pick anybody we wanted to pick and just practice what we learned in the class by batting the, 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 the volleyball back and forth over the net, right? he began to cry and said, nobody picked me. And then Kobe looked at me, and he picked me. And he was known as a kid who would, who would bring people into the, into the sports scene. He would bring people on the, in the, local, um, the local courts, he would bring people in. So he was just a kid who liked to reach out to other people. And uh, by the way, that, that later on, Sherry met the mother of that kid. She actually told that story someplace. And the mother came over to her and said, listen, I want you to know that my kid, it wasn't only that he wasn't good at sports, that he was small, but my son had had cancer and he was blind in one eye. And Kobe was really the kid who really reached out to real and really helped him out. So he looked at kids who needed help because he had experienced that when he first came to Israel in fourth grade. He looked at those kids, he reached out to them, and he brought that in. He kind of did outreach, you know, like his father did at Maryland Hillel. That's who he was. So it's important to remember that uh, he loved Israel, he loved the Jewish people, he loved being Jewish, and that 
you know, uh, there's a number of people who have come to Israel when they heard about what happened to him and made Aliyah to you know, make him very happy. Well, Seth Mandel, thank you so much for sharing a little bit of your memory of your, of your precious son and all the work that you've done in his memory to perpetuate healing and kindness for thousands of kids and all those affected by volunteering and, and all of the work that goes into it. God willing, we shouldn't know for more tragedy within our nation, but also be able to rest with the comfort that an organization like the Kobe Mandel Foundation exists in those inevitable times of need for people who are suffering among us. So thank you very, very much, and you should have tremendous success, and all of your work should be a continued merit for Kobe's soul, for Kobe's neshama, on his yard site and every day beyond. Thank you very much. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.